Hello, listeners, and thank you so much for tuning in for another journal episode of the In Common podcast. My name is Frank van Laarhoven, and you are about to listen to a conversation that I had with Jim Sinner about his recent IJC publication that is entitled Crafting Collective Management Institutions in Messy Real World Settings, a Call for Action Research. Jim co-authored this paper with Mark Tadaki, Edward Chalit, Margaret Kilvington, Paratina Tane, and Christina Ropp. The messy real-world setting that the title refers to regards catchment areas in New Zealand that are increasingly facing non-point diffuse water pollution problems and due to what seems a classic upstream-downstream dynamic, it is hard to get individual occupants of the landscape to engage in the kind of collective action that would be necessary to tackle these problems. There are two things that I especially like about this paper. Firstly, it explicitly seeks to give practical guidance to real-life commoners, that is to say, prospective for wannabe institutional crafters and collective management enablers. And secondly, it does so by means of action research, meaning that commoners are not treated as subjects to observe and study or respondents to extract data from, but as co-researchers that collaborate in framing and thinking about problems and possible solutions. In the talk that I had with Jim, we discuss a couple of ideas for commons researchers that are based on his research. First, we need to get alongside uh, the people on the ground. Second, we need to engage with social identities in order to provide context to costs and benefit considerations of commoners. And third, engagement with social justice issues is key as they are inherent to any kind of social relation. I hope you enjoy listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed having it. Jim, a, a warm welcome to our show. Uh, and for context, you are in New Zealand and I am in the Netherlands. And, and for me, it's March 8th still. But for you, International uh, Women's Day already lays one day behind you. I am especially thankful to talk with you today because in your paper, uh, you and your colleagues combine my favorite question with my favorite approach to commons research. You and your co-authors ask, how can we give guidance to what you call prospective or would-be institutional crafters and collective uh, uh, management enablers? And in order to address that, collect, uh, that question, you apply an explicit action research approach with commoners not as subjects or respondents, but as co-researchers. And I personally happen to think that this combination that is the question and the approach is at the heart of the most promising or arguably the most necessary way forward for colors, uh, common scholarship. But that, that's just me. Let's, let's talk about you, about the paper uh, that you have kindly decided to share with our readers. So a first question would be about your background. I, I would like to start by having you introducing yourself. Normally I ask people on the show to define themselves in terms of academic disciplines but looking at your current affiliation, at your work, and after having read your paper, your most recent IJC paper, that is great and undeniably uh, has uh, academic merit, by the way. One may wonder if you see yourself as an academic to begin with. Uh, I have the impression, and maybe I'm wrong, that you lean 
to the practitioner side of things quite a bit, or maybe you don't even distinguish between academia and practice. So, so I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your background in this sense, uh, Jim? Well, thank you, Frank. And it's delight, delight uh, to be with you today and to share a bit of, um, of a story about our paper and, and the origins of it and, and where we hope to go with that work. I come from North Dakota, USA originally, and I came to New Zealand 31 years ago um, with my New Zealand wife. I grew up in a, in a small rural community in North Dakota in a farming family and studied agricultural economics as a, in my master's, in my graduate degree. And so I, I have a, kind of an, an economics background, but I also studied political science in my first degree. So I had that as kind of an underlying, um, underlying perspective on, on things. I spent most of my early career working in policy um, for, for government, NGOs, and others, um, kind of grappling with issues of, of agriculture, the environment. And in particular, I spent a lot of time working on, on water policy. Laterally, I guess in the last 15 years, I've, I've moved back into, into more of a research context, still doing a lot of work with policy and, and for policy agencies, but also, um, I suppose, revisiting and, and renewing my, my more academic interests in this particular problem of how to manage fresh water and, and in particular the diffuse non-point source uh, pollution that we see so prevalent around the world uh, affecting our, our waterways. Um, and so during, during the last 10 years, I've, I've um, got some research funding and uh, had some really productive interactions with some young researchers. So I'd, I hired a young postdoc, Mark Tadaki, who's one of the co-authors of the paper. And together we've, we've begun to explore some of the more difficult and, and I guess in some ways returning to the, the more political aspects of, of, of this, this context and this problem. The, the human geography of, of the way people interact with the environment and what shapes the nature of those interactions and, the, and the, the, what shapes the, the politics of those interactions, um, both between government and, um, and resource users, but also between resource users themselves and how, how those things come about. Um, and as we have grappled with different approaches to trying to solve the freshwater um, management problems in New Zealand, I've become increasingly convinced that we aren't going to solve it with the traditional tools that that governments have have applied to to freshwater. Um, neither subsidies nor voluntary extension nor nor um, regulatory interventions that say you must do A, B, and C. It's just it come clear to me it's not going to work. And I was I've always been interested in the work of of um, Eleanor Ostrom and the and the, the school of, of work that's developed around um, the common property theory that, that she helped to develop. And laterally, I guess I've, I've become particularly interested in what, as I realized that, that some kind of collective management approach was going to be necessary to solve our, our water management problems. Yeah. I got again then more interested in, in the work of Eleanor Ostrom and started looking at that as a, as a, a theoretical lens through which to, to, understand the problem we face, but also the, the potential so solutions to those problems. Yeah, that's, that's 
that that response, that answer has me uh, moving on to, to a next question that I would uh, want to ask you about the case, which is about non-point uh, uh, pollution, diffuse water pollution. Uh, and, and, and in the paper that now serves as an excuse to, to have us talking about uh, things, um, that paper deals with, with uh, catchment areas and, and the role of so-called catchment groups as a potential way to coordinate uh, collective action and the governance of, of, of catchment as a commons, uh, a, a way to have individual farmers uh, act together to solve environmental or, or to reach environmental objectives to solve uh, solution, uh, pollution issues, water quality issues. Can you briefly and in broad strokes set the scene for us in a bit more detail? Uh, what do we need to know about this case before we move on and talk about theories and methods and, and, and results. Yeah. Well, let me start with, with one theoretical observation, which is that in the kind of in the core theory of, of um, collective management of the commons, there is generally a resource that the that the users are relying upon essentially for their livelihood or or for some um, major part of their of their well-being. And, and that motivates the collective management. We, we don't have that in the, in the case of water management with diffuse pollution, because generally it is the downstream users who suffer mm -hmm. the significant effects. And in New Zealand, as in other developed countries, we've seen a situation where um, farmers have developed their land, they've intensified, they've applied more fertilizer or, or more cultivation, generating sediment and, and nutrient runoff. And in New Zealand, we have a very... Um, a lot of livestock on the, on the landscape. And so we also have bacterial contamination um, that is an issue in, in many places. And for the individual farmer, that, that runoff is virtually invisible. And they, um, they, can't, they can't judge how much, of a how much they are contributing to the problem. And more often than not, they, they think that it's less serious than it is. And they think that the, river, that the waterways are healthier than they really are. Mm -hmm. Um, this is common in New Zealand. We've had uh, significant growth in dairy farming here over the last 20 to 30 years, to some extent as a result of the, the trade liberalization that happened in the Uruguay, Uruguay round of the, of the GATT negotiations in the mid-90s that freed up international markets. A lot of growth of dairy, displacing a lot of the sheep farming that New Zealand has been famous for um, historically. We now have probably half, only half the number of sheep we had 40 years ago. And those have been replaced on the, on the easier, lower, um, more level terrain by dairy, dairy cows. Um, some, some regions have gone from predominantly sheep to predominantly dairy in the, the lower country. And dairy are heavier animals. They, they disturb the soil more. They, um, they are farmed more intensively. They um, have more urine and, and fecal matter that goes onto the land. And all of that creates nutrient runoff. And, and we've had a significant deterioration of our waterways in New Zealand. That's still, if people came here from, from Europe or other parts of the world, they might, they might say, what are you concerned about? Your, your rivers are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And yes, we do have many beautiful rivers, but nonetheless, in the lowland areas, in many areas, in our estuaries, we are seeing the, the results of sedimentation and eutrophication and fecal contamination. And that is of, of great concern to New Zealanders who are, who are used to a very pristine environment. We also have an indigenous populations here who have 
um, rec recognition in statute as caretakers of the land mm -hmm. and who need to be consulted in, in how we manage land and water. And they are historically people who rely very heavily on um, harvesting seafood and fish um, from both, um, both freshwater and, and coastal environments. And to them, it is of, it is of uh, great concern and, and trauma, to, to be honest, that our waterways are, are increasingly degraded and, and no longer a source of, of food for them. It's not that they rely necessarily on the food for sustenance, but it is the cultural connection. The, the food harvesting is a central element of their, of their cultural traditions. And if they can't do that, then, then their cultural traditions are, are in, in jeopardy as well. So that's just a bit of a background of, of the, the, the landscape that we're working in here. Yeah, that, that's great. And you mentioned uh, cultural tradition, uh, and that has me thinking of identity, another concept that plays a role in your particular way of uh, framing things. And I, I, I love the way in which you do that. And in doing that, you are uh, critical. You're contesting part of what is uh, known as the IED framework, the Institutional uh, Analysis and Development Framework that many of the listeners of this show, but also the readers of the journal know so well. You, you contest its treatment of resource users as purely rational self-interested actors who consider only private costs and, uh, and, and benefits. And instead you rather see people's action as being strongly influenced by personal norms, which in turn, if I understand you correctly, are influenced by, uh, by their identity and identity or social identity, you, you call it, is an important concept in the work that we are discussing today. And you're stating that that would be institutional crafters. I, I love that word. Uh, you say that they need to assemble social interests, social uh, identities, and, and be sensitive to diverse and shifting subjectivities. So you observe that whereas the need, uh, where that that whereas uh, the need to uh, to align multiple identities and interests uh, to craft collective management institutions is apparent among practitioner, but just how to accomplish that uh, remains unclear. And and then you go on to ask the question that underlies the paper, how can collective management researchers assist those wanting to craft new institutions? I, I think that's, that's a very important question. So before getting to answer that question, can you tell us uh, in a little bit more detail about the origin of that question? What led you to question the practical worth and implications of let's say more conventional uh, uh, forms of common scholarship in that sense? What, what led you to formulate the question as you did? Mm. Yeah, thanks. Um, I alluded to this a little bit earlier in saying that we, I became convinced that, that collective management was, the, was perhaps the only way we're going to get on top of the, the water management problems that we face. Um, and in looking at the, at the literature, um, Ostrom's work and some of the work that has followed, it, it is a very nice job of, of assessing and distilling lessons from commons um, institutions that already exist and, and drawing design principles based on those. But those institutions didn't just appear overnight. And what we realized in, in looking for inspiration there was that there's very little that describes how these institutions have evolved over time. 
And yet we know that they did. They, they don't just appear. Um, they probably, in many cases, took decades, if not centuries, to evolve into the way that they exist now. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we don't have any, any, ins- any, any view or any uh, much literature describing those evolutions and, and how they got from, from, where they, from where they started to where they are now. And that, I suppose, was the, was the original question for us was, it's all good and well having these design principles. Um, but if your case doesn't quite fit those, or even if it does, how do you get, how do you start? And how do you get from, from where we are now to, to have a, a, a collective, um, a collective management regime? Um, so that was, that was the, the origin of the question was just looking at this and say, well, um, this is a trajectory. It isn't, it isn't a switch you turn on and off. Let's, let's move to, uh, to the to, to the particular approach that you have uh, applied, so so mm-hmm. you contest the notion that is posited by Cummings, but also by many others in our field that what is needed are more consistent definitions and measures and fully specified models of relationships between system elements and also systematic testing of hypotheses with data and models. You you counter that position with the proposition that what is also needed to really understand complexity is research that engages uh, with people trying to craft new institutions. And and this realization, I understand from your paper, has you opting for action research. That is to say, research that involves researchers and participants jointly in undertaking interventions to improve real-life outcomes. And, And you clarify that action research is, in fact, not a method per se, but more of an orientation to inquire uh, to inquiry that engages co-researchers and inquiry to inquiring those who otherwise might be research subjects. So, so may I ask you what has led you to choosing action research rather than, let's say, hypothesis testing as the most appropriate approach to addressing the questions that you had, uh, Jim? I've, it probably stems from, from, in some ways, my my policy background, um, in that. Um, I've always been one who wanted to, to get into trying to figure out how to, how to solve the problem on the ground. How do, we, how do you devise rules, norms, institutions that will actually lead to the behaviors we want? Um, so that's probably my orientation to start with. But um, I also, in this particular problem, um, in order to, to understand how these design principles might actually apply on the ground, I think we need to get alongside people who are, who are trying to craft these, these institutions, understand what they're experiencing, how they see things, and, and to help them understand things as well. They, one of the things we did in our, in our research, and I'll just pause to, to explain, we, we, had, we have still um, people from four different catchments who come together two or three times a year into a forum where we discuss their, their um, process of trying to design and evolve these new collective managed institutions in their own catchments. And in one of our engagements with them, we presented the design principles from, from Ostrom's and subsequent work and said, which, which of these are helpful to you, which are not? And we realized that even to present them and to have a discussion we first had to translate those principles into words that our catchment colleagues could understand. That as they're written in the journals, they're not meaningful to people on the ground. 
So the first task for us was actually just to translate them into, into common plain English that was relevant to the context in which these people find themselves. So that's, that was one real learning for us. Um, and, and then we had, we, we discussed, and it, it, this, this process is, is them learning as well. It's, it's them, them reflecting on, hmm, this is an interesting principle. Does this apply to us or not? In what way, in what way not? And, and that helps us understand also the process that they're going through and the challenges they face and, and the, the point in the journey that they are on at the moment. It doesn't mean that um, the principle might not become more relevant in the future, but right now, in particular, the, the example we just explained in the paper is the, the principle about sanctioning non-compliance with norms, that, that our, um, our catchment members were quite resistant to. Maybe in the future, they will evolve to a state where um, their group will sanction its members for non-compliance with norms. But right now, they felt that was not worth it. It was not um, helpful in their institutional crafting to be sanctioning people. Um, that's kind of a long answer to your question. I'm not quite sure if I got there. No, no, I love it because it, it, uh, it, it, it rings a bell. I mean, there is a relation with my own research where I have looked at... Uh, at people's responses, NGO responses to the design uh, principles, NGOs that serve as brokers, uh, helping out communities with the crafting, the designing of institutional settings that are presumably apt for uh, commons governance. And, and precisely the sanctioning issue is always contested. I, I looked at that uh, with regard to drinking water systems in Bangladesh. And it was specifically the sanctioning aspect that triggered a lot of protest. And the same is, uh, is now uh, something that we see in similar research in, in uh, community forestry settings in India. So uh, mm. it's very interesting. I, I might I, just add, Frank, that um, action research is something that is, a, is an orientation that I've used in my other work. And it's something that, that is very hard to do perfectly but nonetheless has some really good principles that, that we should all strive for in terms of um, developing the questions with your, with your co-researchers. So they, are, they help to, to design the questions, they help to design the methodologies. And in real life, that's, that's challenging because they're, they're busy people yeah. and they don't have the luxury of, of having hours to sit in an office and, and think of, of these things like, like we do. Um, but nonetheless, it is, um, it's, it's a useful orientation and, and has some really good principles behind it. Yeah, I 100% I, I agree with you, uh, which is why I loved reading your, your paper. Um, and it has you arriving at, uh, at conclusions that I want to wrap up this conversation with. Uh, the, the so what question is normally the deadliest of questions uh, for any researchers. And I, I, I usually tend to end the podcast conversation like this with a question about the practical impact of, uh, of authors' findings of their research. So what can commoners, not academics, learn from what they have studied and found? And, and often uh, guests on the show, especially those with a bit more of an academically inclined uh, perspective, find it harder to, to answer this question than answering questions about uh, theory and methods and what have you. But you will, of course, have absolutely no problem providing us with, with insights and, and, and answers to that, that question. So that million dollar question is how can collective management researchers assist those wanting to craft 
institutions. What, what do those wanting to craft new institutions for collective action or common governance need to do or need to think of? Uh, how, how would you answer this, uh, this, this question based on the outcomes of this particular research, uh, Jim? In our paper, we, we talked about three different, um, three different bodies of, of literature that we think can provide useful insights to the, the, what we call the messy task of, of crafting new institutions in the messy real world. Um, I've discussed the, the design principles and the need to be a little bit more reflective about those and um, in translating working with, with crafters to help them understand and, and help us understand uh, how and where they're relevant and how we uh, how those might evolve over time. So that that's I guess the first thing that, that we should do if we want to help help people on the ground to apply this theory of the commons, then we need to get, we get alongside them, help them understand the principles, but also help us understand as researchers where and how they're relevant and where they're not. The second point that we make in the area we explore is is the area of identity, which you referred to earlier. And I see this as not so much a, um, a challenge to the notion of, of rational thinking and cost benefits, but more um, a context in a, a way of understanding rationality and, and cost benefits and realizing that, that our perceptions of cost and benefits come from somewhere. And they come from who we are and how we see our place in the world. Now, yes, there are there are narrowly conceived cost of benefits that are dollars and cents and in euros, but there are also, and I think this is already recognized in literature, there are there are costs and benefits that we perceive in terms of our relationships with others. And for instance, um, we might be reluctant to impose a sanction on somebody because that jeopardizes our relationship with them, not in a not in a monetary or financial sense, but in a, in a personal sense. So that that speaks to our values and our identity as a person. Mm-hmm. But ask the question: Where does where does this um, where do these perceptions of costs and benefits come from? And and our answer to that question is: It comes it comes from your your own sense of of your identity and your in your place in your community and the and the world. And we call that your social identity. And that is formed. That is not that is not static. It's not fixed at birth. It's something that evolves over time, and it is shaped by by your ongoing relationships and interactions with government with other people, and and we think that that can be um, and should be understood by by commons researchers and engaged with by commons researchers. And we describe in our paper how we have um, facilitated some conversations between the members of our, of our forum between our, our Maori indigenous members and our um, you know, Western uh, farmers who don't have this cultural background mm-hmm. and how conversations help them to see the, their place in the world differently. And, and maybe over time will slowly change their sense of who they are and what their relationships to the land and the people are and how that might change their, their perceptions of cost and benefits. So we, we encourage commons researchers to engage with this issue of identity and think about how, what role that plays in the way that people's, uh, people perceive costs and benefits and the nature of relationships with others. That's the second thing. The last thing which we suggest that commons researchers do if they, if they can engage uh, in an action research uh, orientation with, 
people on the ground crafting new institutions, is to think about the, the social justice issues that are inherent in any set of social relationships. We, I think the tradition of, of uh, IAD and the Awesome School has been focused primarily on the environmental sustainability of, of the resources. But there are other, um, other outcomes that, that result from these institutions that are important uh, socially uh, as well, and that how people relate to, not to one another. There's um, some great work that, that Agarwal did in, in India in the, in the forestry, uh, com- community forestry sectors, which highlighted that, that some people get sanctioned more than other people. The, 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 you know, the, the powerful um, tend, to, tend to control these, these collective institutions. Yep. So we need to reflect as, as researchers on the nature of, of relationships and, and power that is inherent in these institutions, which we may be crafting or maybe challenging. And the example of that that we give in our paper is, is by bringing our indigenous Maori members into our forum, we are trying to empower them to, to have more of a voice in, in these um, problems and landscapes in which they've been historically marginalized as a result of colonization. Um, and have been excluded from from the land that historically their ancestors were on. So we're trying to bring them back into the conversation, give them a voice, um, help them find a way to to have meaningful conversations, and at the same time, change the sense of social identity of of the farmers who are now on on that landscape. So there's there's lots there, I think, that that Commons researchers can do and can pick up on um, to help people in in the real world we're trying to make sense of, of how to go about crafting common uh, collective institutions to manage these difficult problems. That's that's fantastic, and I, I I'm I'm sorry to say with that with this we, we come to an end of this show of this uh, conversation, Jim. I I thank you for for joining me for joining us all the way from New Zealand. For me, it was an absolute uh, pleasure to talk with you and to learn a little bit more about uh, about you, but also about your work. And I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing more work of you, comments related or not. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, Frank. Nice to be here. This was another episode of the Journal Episodes series of the In Common podcast. We produce these episodes for students of the Commons that are ranging from seasoned scholars to early career and wannabe researchers to offer them a peek behind the scenes of research to allow them to appreciate both the nitty gritty and the messy reality that you don't usually get to see in the published versions of the papers. We also make these episodes for commoners and practitioners that may not have the time, the patience or the stomach to work themselves through 20 pages worth of dense jargon-laden research papers. And of course, we make these episodes for you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on the website incommonpodcast.org. The article that we discussed today can be found and downloaded for free at thecommonsjournal.org, our community-owned and operated open access platform for high quality peer reviewed commons research. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons.